welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Romans 15, 1-13 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as your people. Lord, you know that we come in all different states. For some of us, we are weary. We're exhausted from persevering as as your disciples. And uh, Lord, for some of us, we are become numb and hardened in our consciences towards sin. And Lord, we know that for some of us, we've come here, some people have come here in excellent condition. But Lord, there's all different hearts here. There's all different states. And so we just pray, Lord, we all need the same thing. And that's to see your glory. To see you clearly. To see and enjoy you and have our hearts reoriented. And we know, Lord, that your glory is shown in full force in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning we would see Jesus clearly and that seeing him would align our minds and our hearts, uh, all of our affections and desires, that we would live out of a joy of knowing you through Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that's a work only you can do. We pray you do it. Lord, we pray you do it for only your glory. Lord, we pray that as you do that work among us, you've been so faithful to do week in and week out, Lord, that we wouldn't assume any of the glory for that, but that we would know that we, we'd come here this morning asking you to do it. And then when we see you do it, Lord, we pray that we would give you all praise and worship. We pray, Lord, for those who come here and are totally blinded to your glory. They walk around in this theater of glory, this creation you've made, completely blind to who you are, completely blind to your beauty. We pray, Lord, that you take the blinders off this morning. We pray, Lord, that they would see you and desire you, that they would repent of their sin and trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And they would do that for your glory and their eternal joy. We pray, Lord, that there's no one in this room that we won't be with when 
you make good on that promise that Naim read about this morning in Isaiah 11, when you make the world new. We pray that everyone in this room and everyone in those children's rooms, all of the kids and, and young people and middle-aged people and old people that are gathered here together, Lord, that we'd all arrive safely in the world to come. Lord, this is your work, and we're thankful for it. We pray you do it for your glory. And all God's people pray. Amen. We're very close to being done with Romans, and uh, we're in Romans 15. We're mainly going to look at verses 7 through 13. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing Jesus Christ, guys, is God. Jesus Christ is God who came as a man to live and die for the glory of God. Take a look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus lived and died for the glory of God. And you might say, well, what is the glory of God? And the glory of God is, is notoriously difficult to, to really pin down what the glory of God is. I think the best definition I've ever seen is that the glory of God is God's holiness put on display. The glory of God is God's holiness put on display. When we say that God is holy, we mean that he is like no other. When we say God is holy, we mean that he's like no other. That, that God is better than anyone or anything in creation. Amen? When we say God is holy, we're saying that he is better in every way than anyone or anything in creation. God is holy in his love. God isn't just loving, God is love. He has eternally given himself to others. God is holy in his knowledge. God doesn't just know a lot of stuff. God knows all things actual and all things possible in one simple eternal act. God is holy in his power. God isn't just really strong. God is omnipotent, meaning that he's able to do anything that's an act of power, and he can do it without taxing his strength. God is holy in his will. God isn't just able to usually get his to-do list done every day. God is sovereign, meaning that God rules over the entire universe as king, and his will is the ultimate reason that everything happens. God is holy in his freedom. God doesn't just get to do what he wants to do most of the time. God is free, meaning that God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. God is holy in his happiness. God isn't just kind of stoked. God is blessed, meaning that God is the happiest of all beings. You think of him that way? God is the happiest of all beings. You say, well, I'm pretty happy. God's way happier. He's the happiest of all beings. God is holy in his beauty, meaning God's beauty means that he is the sum of all desirable qualities, meaning that there is no way to think of something that God ought to be to make him more beautiful or more desirable or better. Because he is the sum of all desirable qualities. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. That he's better in every way than anyone or anything in creation. And God's glory, guys, is his holiness put on display for all to see. That's what glory is. If we imagine God's holiness as the sun, his glory is the rays that come down to us for us to see and enjoy. The glory is the radiance of God's holiness. His beauty for us to actually see. And the exciting thing for me to tell you about yourself this morning is that you were created to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 6 says, Bring my sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I've created for my glory. You were created for the glory of God. Not to add glory to God, because that would be impossible, 
When you glorify God, you merely reflect how absolutely glorious and beautiful he is. You're merely reflecting who he is. We were all made, guys, in God's image to be like little reflectors that would pick up on the glory of God shining down upon us and scatter it out into the darkness, lighting up the dark world. That's what you're made to be, to image God, to be reflector of his glory. You are made to glorify God by reflecting his beauty and worth in the world. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing thing to be made for. But we know, guys, that we've failed to do this, haven't we? Even as I say it, you're like, well, I haven't done the greatest job at that. And that's true. We have all failed to live for the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the essence of sin, is that we haven't lived up to our mission, which is to glorify God. But what I want to tell you this morning is the good news that Jesus came and he did the exact opposite of what we've done. We've failed to glorify God. We have failed to be his image bearers. But Jesus came to be the perfect image bearer of God. Being both God and man, it says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus came as the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Isn't that amazing to think about who Jesus is? He's the radiance. Remember I said the glory is like the, the rays coming from the holiness of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus had the boldness to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he was right about that, right? Jesus was and is exactly what God is like. When you guys read through the Gospels and you see the beauty of Jesus and you're like, man, there's nobody like him, you know? You read the Gospels and think, there is nobody as good as Jesus. What you're seeing, guys, in the Gospels is you're seeing the glory of God. And Jesus has come to remove our blinders so that we can see how absolutely glorious God is. And we need that. We need that really badly because we've actually made ourselves intentionally blind to the glory of God, haven't we? Romans 1, we looked at this months ago, says that we have all suppressed the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. For although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. John Calvin describes it this way. He says, creation, based on this text, is like a glorious theater. Okay? It's a theater. Creation is a theater filled with God's glory, and yet we walk around in it blinded. And that blinding's intentional, but it's real. You know, so much of our days we go through and we see all the beautiful things of creation, and we don't think of God because we've been blinded to the glory of God. But Jesus has come to remove the blinders to the glory of God. And that's what we see in this text in Romans 15. We see two ways that Jesus came to glorify God. We're going to look at those real briefly. The first one is, Jesus glorifies God by making good on God's promises. Take a look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So God made all these promises. He made promises of a Messiah to Israel throughout the Old Testament. He talks about here to the circumcised, that means to the Jews. And he did this through a series of covenants, of formal promises that he made throughout the Old Testament. And you see in this text, he mentions the patriarchs like Abraham, but God also made promises of a Messiah to people like Adam and Noah and Moses and David and the prophets. And all of these covenant promises in the Old Testament all point to Jesus. And what's really cool, in a few months, we're going to start our Advent series. Our Advent series is the series we have leading up to Christmas to get our hearts right for that season. 
And what we're going to do in that series we're planning on is going through the covenants and showing how each one points to Jesus. But all these promises point forward to Jesus. God made these promises to sinners all the way through history that he was going to send a Messiah to remove our sin and make us right with him and even restore the entire created world. And those promises, guys, he was not obligated to do. He was not obligated to save us. He was not obligated to send a Messiah. He was not obligated to restore the world for us. But once he made a promise, he was obligated to keep it because God is truthful. God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. And so you have promise after promise building up throughout the Old Testament and all these promises getting fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You guys realize that if you take the Old Testament and you strip the New Testament from it, it is not a completed story. It's a whole bunch of promises that have not been made good on, right? But Jesus has come to make good on all of God's promises. He's come to glorify God by, by fulfilling the promises of God, to show that God is faithful. You guys think about the cross and why the cross happened. And the cross happened because God loves us and he wants to save us. Um, the cross happened because we're sinners and God ha- is just God. He has to punish sin. But one thing we often don't think about is the cross is about the glory of God. The cross is about fulfilling God's promises and vindicating his truthfulness. And that's what we see in verse 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And what's really cool about this text is Paul also says that those promises that were made to Israel aren't just for Israel. Take a look at verse 9. He says, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the second way that Jesus glorifies God is by filling the world with worshipers. By filling the world with worshipers. This word Gentiles here, it means all the nations except for Israel. That God's promises to Israel weren't just for Israel. They were for people of every nation. And that was always God's plan. It was always his plan to include people from every nation. And what's cool is Paul you know, proves it here, and he proves it by quoting four texts. Do you see them? Verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Those are all Old Testament texts. And what's cool is they're all drawn from different parts of the Old Testament, as if he's to say, hey guys, it's everywhere. You know, He quotes a historical book, he quotes the law, he quotes a psalm, and he quotes a prophet. As if to say, the inclusion of the Gentiles is everywhere. There's a historical book, 2 Samuel 22, that's what he's quoting in verse 9. He says, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. He quotes the Torah. A lot of us don't think of that, but the, the Torah even has promises about the Gentiles being included in the promises of God. In Deuteronomy 32, which he quotes in verse 10 here, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That even in the law, he was saying, it's not just going to be for you guys. It's going to be the whole world. That the nations are going to come and enjoy me with you. He quotes from a psalm, Psalm 117. That's in verse 11 there. He says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol him. And then he quotes the prophets. Isaiah 11, there in verse 12, he says, The root of Jesse will come and will arise to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles hope. And so Jesus came, guys, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That Jesus came to add worshipers all around the world for God. Because God didn't just want to be worshipped by one group of people that were all very similar, right? Israel. He wanted to be worshipped by every single nation on earth. This is imperialism, okay? This is imperialism in the strongest form, the best kind of imperialism. He wants every nation under heaven to worship him. 
And did you notice, guys, how the Gentiles worship him? Take a look at it, verses 9 through 12. How do they worship him? How do they glorify him? Verses 9 through 12, the Gentiles are glorifying God. How are they glorifying him? Let me ask it to you this way. What kind of mood do you see here? In verse 9, it says they glorify God by praising him and singing his name. In verse 10, it says they glorify God by rejoicing in him. In verse 11, it says they glorify God by praising him and extolling him. In verse 12, it says they glorify God by hoping in him. What's the general mood here? How are these people glorifying God? What's the mood? Happy mood? Sad mood? Joy, right? They glorify God in their joy. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? The Gentiles glorify God by enjoying him. They glorify God by enjoying him. It's not that they're just glorifying God by keeping his commands. They are doing that. But they're glorifying God by keeping his commands out of joy in him. Guys, God is the true source of everlasting happiness. And that's why it's the most loving thing for God to do, to want to seek his own glory. Sometimes we hear that God is after his own glory and God's top priority is his own glory. And we think, wow, that, seems, that doesn't seem loving. Guys, that's the most loving thing God could possibly do is seek his own glory. I mean, if, if God is the only fountain of everlasting happiness, he should talk about it right? If God is the only fountain of everlasting happiness in the world, if the whole world is a desert and God is this one fountain of life in the middle of the desert, the most loving thing God can do is put a big spotlight over himself and say, come to me, everyone, and drink, right? Wouldn't that be the most loving thing to do for the person that's the only source of everlasting happiness and joy in life? It would be to say, come to me and drink, which is exactly what Jesus said when he came as a man on this earth. And by the way, these people, these Gentiles in verses 9 through 12, they're us. I want you to miss this. (laughs) Those are you guys. I mean, most of us here are Gentiles. There's a few among us that are Jews, but almost everyone here is a Gentile. These Gentiles that are glorifying God by enjoying him are you guys. There's a prophecy about what's happening right here amongst you guys. It's amazing. And a whole lot more people that God is going to call from all over the world. The good news this morning, guys, is that we glorify God by enjoying him. That's the kind of joy you see in verses 9 through 12. We glorify God by enjoying God. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by his glory being rejoiced in. Isn't that amazing? God is glorified not just by his glory being seen, but by his glory being rejoiced in. Our delight in God shows that God is delightful. Our savoring of God shows that he's savory. Our treasuring of God shows that he's the greatest treasure. God is glorified not just in our obedience, but in our joy of him. Kids, little kids, we got kids here. Do you know why you were made? Do you know why God made you? Anybody want to answer that question from the catechism, by the way? No? Do you know why God made you? God made you to glorify him by enjoying him. Kids, that's why you were made. You think, why was I made? So at some point you're going to wonder. You were made to glorify God by enjoying him. What an amazing purpose for God to make us, right? He didn't make us as his employees. He made us as his children. And he made us to glorify him by enjoying him. You were made to be happy in God forever. And the good news is that in spite of your sin, you can do that through Jesus Christ if you trust in him. So we glorify God by enjoying him. We glorify God by praising him. Did you notice in those passages, 9 through 12, that their joy was evidenced in praise, in worship, in what came out of their mouths? Look at verse 9 again. 
Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. The joy comes out as praise. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. You know, it's very natural, guys, if we enjoy God, for our joy to come out in praise. We always praise what we enjoy. We always praise what makes us the happiest. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the world rings with praise. Lovers praise their loves. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite games. There's praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historic personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I've noticed that the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praise the most, right? Isn't that true? The humblest and, and most balanced and capacious minds praise the most, while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise the least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Isn't that true of you? You know you're healthy when you're praising God, right? Is that praise comes from what makes us happiest. We praise what makes us happiest. And so we praise God, we worship God because he makes us happiest. And worship is so important. Gathered worship is so important. And I think you guys get that now after last year and everything. But gathered worship is important. Especially as we gather, guys, in our differences. You think about Romans 14 that we did last week. As we worship together, even and especially in our differences, we show the world that there must be something super savory about Jesus. Like the fact that people get up, get dressed, get their cranky kids in a minivan, drive here to worship together is showing that there must be, showing the world there must be something super savory about Jesus. In the Roman church, it was differences of the strong and weak we saw last week between Jews and Gentiles. In our church, there's like countless differences. But what's cool is we all agree on one thing. Jesus is absolutely satisfying. That's why we came. (laughs) Jesus is absolutely satisfying. Jesus is supremely satisfying to the rich and the poor, to the right and the left, to the young and the old, to the strong and to the weak, to the healthy and the sick. Jesus is absolutely satisfying, right? Someone could look at our church and say, this doesn't make sense. How could this many people that are so different all agree that Jesus is the best thing they've ever found? And the answer is, is he's the fountain of all lasting happiness, right? We found him. That's why actually assembling together, guys, for worship is essential, by the way. It's because this is how we show the world. It's one of the ways we show the world how absolutely satisfying Jesus is in such a diverse group of people. Uh, the Greek word for church means ekklesia, is ekklesia. It means assembly. God has always wanted to gather together a diverse, visible people that the world can see to glorify his name. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And we're happy to do it because we praise what makes us happiest. And Jesus makes us happiest, so we praise him. Another thing that Lewis kind of brings to mind is that the praise of God also completes our joy in God. So we praise God because we enjoy him, but actually we really enjoy praising him as well. He said it this way. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses it, but completes the enjoyment. Have you guys found that? That as you're praising God, it completes the enjoyment in God? He says, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Or to come suddenly at the turn of a road at some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people who are with you don't care. 
Isn't that frustrating? You know, if you love somebody, if you love something, you want to praise. You want to declare. And that's what we're doing. And we worship him because we enjoy him. And our worship actually completes our joy. Like when Dave came up here and he does the call to worship, the call to worship is God calling you to worship him. And when God calls us to worship him here, he's calling us actually to come and enjoy him in worship. Jesus came to live and die, to glorify God, to spread that joy all over the world. And that's our mission too, guys, as a church. It's about glory and joy. The glory of God and the joy of others. Our mission statement for our church is we exist to display and declare the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's a pretty good life mission too. I'll read it to you again. We exist to display and declare the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's what Paul was doing here in Romans. He was spreading the glory of God and the joy of others. That's what we do when we send missionaries, like Lorian's going to come visit us real soon. Or, you know, we had Rebecca and Paige go out, or Holly go out. When we send out missionaries, what we're doing is we're spreading the glory of God and the joy of others. That's what we're doing every time we gather here, is we're spreading the glory of God and the joy of others. That's what we do when we invite other people to join us here to worship, is we're spreading the glory of God and the joy of others. That's what we do when we share the gospel with a friend is we're spreading the glory of God and the joy of others. That's what you do, guys, when you disciple your kids, when you sit down with them and you open the word and you talk to them about the things of Jesus, is you're spreading the glory of God and the joy of others. That's what we do. I want to just stop here real quick and just ask you a question, because I want you to reflect on this. What is your life's ambition? What, what is your life's ambition? One author said it this way. This is how to develop your life's ambition. He said this, Find the highest conceivable good and then orient your whole life around it. Okay, that's what you want to do. That's what you're supposed to do with your life. You're supposed to go, find the highest conceivable good and then orient your whole life around it. That's what it means to have a life's ambition. And so I'd ask you this morning, what is the highest conceivable good that you're orienting your whole life around? And I know for a lot of people in our area and many in this room, you'd say my family, right? If you're honest, what is your highest conceivable good? Like, what is the thing, your, what is your life's ambition? What is the most important thing in your life? You would say, my family. But I'll tell you this morning that Jesus said multiple times, that's the wrong answer. And I think that's one thing that, that really where Jesus rubs up against our culture, our culture is all about kids and family and, and all that, which is an awesome gift of God, obviously, right? But Jesus would say that that's the wrong answer. If your ultimate sense of good, the, your life's ambition, your highest conceivable good is your family. Jesus would say that's the wrong answer. It has to be God in his kingdom, even above your family. Because guys, it doesn't take the Holy Spirit for you to make your life about your family, does it? It doesn't. I don't even think you necessarily have to be a mammal, okay? It's like that natural, okay, to care about your family above all else. I mean, the octopus, mother octopus, dies caring for her brood, she like has babies, she stays in there and she dies and I don't know if they feed off her or whatever. I don't think it's like that. But, but guys, to have your family be your ultimate and highest good, it doesn't take the Holy Spirit to do that, right? Some people actually value God because they think he's good for their family. That's backwards, right? It's backwards. Highest conceivable good, my family. And man, if we could bring God in here to help me with this. No, God has to be our highest conceivable good. How about this for your highest goal? How about you make it your goal to display and declare the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people?
old people, what are you going to give your last years for? Okay? Your last years, what are you going to give it for? Your last years are not to kind of kind of coast to the finish line. Okay? That's not why you've been given last years. Last years should make you urgent, right? For the glory of God and the joy of all people, right? Middle-aged people, you've got half-life left. I know, I'm so fun. I'm, I'm available for parties, you know, if you want. But I'm really aware of this. I've got like, at the most, half left. What are you going to give your last half of your life for? Kids, young people, what are you going to give your life for? How about giving it for the glory of God and the joy of all people? Glorifying God by showing others that Jesus is the only way to everlasting happiness. So we glorify God by enjoying him, by praising him. We also glorify God by hoping in him. I love this. Look at this. Notice that there's one other way that we glorify God in this text. Remember, we're the Gentiles. So in verse 12, he says that our joy actually settles deep within us as hope. Take a look at verse 12. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles hope. We glorify God, guys, by hoping in him. Okay, by enjoying him, by praising him, and also by hoping in him. Now, hope implies adversity, right? No one needs hope if everything's already awesome, right? Do you need hope when things are awesome? Not really, no. We need hope when we're suffering. In a gathering this size, guys, there is a ton of suffering. I don't know about all of it, but I know about a lot more of it than you do, probably, and it's everywhere in this room, okay? You know, there's suffering of remaining faithful despite severe temptations, um, marital struggles, you know, struggles in the physical body, struggles with painful losses, struggles with suffering and difficulty in, in people's minds, right? How do you persevere in that kind of pain day after day? And the answer is hope. Hope is how we persevere. And guys, hope is different than optimism. I think we get this mixed up. Optimism is a very natural quality that some people have. Some people are just kind of optimistic people, right? And then there's other of us who are kind of pessimistic. You know, everything's a dystopia, you know, coming. But there's hope and optimism. Optimism, guys, is believing this life will be great. It's, it's believing that the circumstances of this life are going to be great for you. Okay, that's optimism. Hope is believing that your next life will be great. Yeah, hope is believing that you're going to have amazing circumstances in the world to come. I know that some of you guys, and it's like for the last year, I realize that I'm bothering some of you. Okay, And the way I'm bothering you is you're bothered by, you're disturbed by how undisturbed I am. Okay, And I know this happens over and over again. Okay, That you've been very disturbed by how undisturbed I am. You know, you'll show me something scary, and you say, aren't you worried about this? And I say, well, I think we're going to be fine. Okay, And that's disturbing. It's disturbing for somebody to be so undisturbed. Right? And some of you guys think, and I know you think this because you've told me, that I'm naively optimistic, and that's my problem. But I would just say to you guys this morning, don't confuse my hope for optimism. As far as I know, it's hope. <laughs> it's hope is why I'm undisturbed, okay? Don't confuse my hope for optimism. It's not optimism, it's hope. It's hope is why I'm disturbingly undisturbed. And where do we find hope? We find hope here in verses 9 through 12. Remember, you know, we are the Gentiles. And so where do we find hope? Look at verse 12. He said, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Okay, you guys are the Gentiles. And we hope in whoever this person that came from the root of Jesse. Who is that? Well, Jesse was King David's dad. King David was promised a descendant who would reign as king forever. A real human king that would reign forever. And he would reign on earth forever. And Jesus is that king from the root of Jesse, right? 
And, and this king from the root of Jesse, he will rule here. In fact, he's already ruling. The Bible talks about that even now he is subduing his enemies. You know, it may not look like it, but he is ruling. He is sitting in heaven where God is saying to him, sit as I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God has a plan for his son, Jesus, to reign. He began reigning at the ascension. He will reign here fully on earth and make all things new when he returns in glory. And what will that reign look like? Well, Naim read about it earlier. Verse 12 here is quoting from Isaiah 11. Let me read the context of Isaiah 11 about this, this one that comes from the root of Jesse. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So he'll return. He's going to judge the world rightly, as a right judge would judge it. He's going to remove the wicked from the earth, and then he's going to make all things new. It says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now listen to the way the world is going to be like recreated and made new and restored. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It's a total remaking of creation. All the curse removed. Everything made new. Us in resurrected bodies. The world ridded of all disease and death and dysfunction and sadness and grief. And then he says this. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. How amazing is that? And I don't want you guys to miss it. That's the earth. That's this world made new. You know, your future is not to die and go be a ghost in a place with a light blue background, white puffy clouds, strumming a harp, right? That would not be heaven, Okay. That is not heaven. Heaven is the remaking of the entire physical universe and Jesus reigning here on earth forever, making all things new. This entire restoration and renewal in the glorious presence of God himself, that God who we see only partly now, we're gonna see in full. Guys, that's hope, not optimism. That's called hope. You know, people say like, well, I don't know where this world is coming to. There's gonna be some bumpy places along the road. I'm not gonna doubt that. But that's where it's arriving. You know, if that's where it's arriving, then we can have hope. Hope is believing that's our future. Hope is believing that because of the death of Jesus and us trusting in his death for our sins, that we're going to get to enjoy that there because we belong with the wicked that get wiped out, but we get to inherit that land. Hope is believing that King Jesus will make it happen. That's what hope is. That's what will make you disturbingly undisturbed. And, and we know, guys, that God is going to fulfill this promise because you could say, like, that's a massive promise. I'm not sure. Is this really going to happen? I, I tend to doubt it, right? He's already fulfilled the much harder promises of the gospel, right? Think about it, guys. So there's all these promises. One of them is that he would become a man and be crucified in our place to bear our sins. 
He already did the hard part. He already took care of the hard part, right? He's got all these promises. He did the hardest one. Which is harder, right? To become a real man and suffer in agony on the cross for our sins and be raised from the dead? Or to come back and reign and make all things new? He already did the hard part. Jesus glorifies God by showing that God makes good on his promises. He will most certainly make good on his promise to restore and to return and restore and reign. Because when you have that kind of hope in the future, that hope allows the joy and the peace of the place to come to kind of trickle back into the present, right? So that if I know that's the future, if I have hope and certainty that that is the world to come, that's my future, resurrected body, reunited with all those who have trusted in Jesus in this world made new, no sickness, no suffering, no death, no mental health struggles, none of that, right? Just this beautiful place where I get to enjoy God's very presence because he is the jewel of that place, right? God's very presence to see his glory and enjoy him. If I know that's my future, what's amazing is this is a place of joy and peace, and that joy and peace trickles back into the present, which is not so good, right? Present is not so good, but the joy and peace of the future trickles back into it as I have hope. And so even in a time of grief and suffering, we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing because the hope we have is that Jesus is coming as king. He's going to make all things new. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us if we trust God's promises. And that's what this benediction is about. Look at verse 11. I'll close on this. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I just want to ask you this morning, do you have that hope? Have you asked Jesus to be both your Savior and your King? You want both, right? You want him to take away your sins and you want him to make this world new. You want him to make you new. Have you invited him to be both Savior and King of your life? You can today. Turn from your sin and trust in him and then you will join us by God's grace in the world to come. We'll all meet again there. Even if this is the very last time we all see each other. We're going to meet again there. Holy Spirit gives you the joy and peace now because you know exactly how the story ends. Don't you? Let's pray. Father, we pray that this time in the Word and in worship and in the Lord's Supper would fill us with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Lord, I don't even know what people do that don't believe in you. I don't know how they aren't immediately driven mad. To have the certainty of why we were made, that we were made to glorify you and enjoy you forever, to have the certainty that you have a plan which you have made very clear over the centuries with promise after promise, to know that you have taken away our guilt and shame on the cross through Jesus Christ and we bear it no more. To know that your spirit now indwells us to comfort and give us hope and peace and joy. To know exactly what this world is coming to. That you're going to make all things new. Lord, the riches we have to live by are unimaginable. Lord, I just don't know how people are not driven mad immediately that don't have that. So we pray, Lord, that we would be people that would go and tell, that we would share this news with people who need to hear it, that we would invite them to come and worship Jesus Christ with us.
that we would invite them to enter the joy of being your beloved children. Lord, we pray as we praise you now, we just pray it would be from hearts that enjoy you, and Lord, that you would multiply our joy as we sing out your praise. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would truly feed us with true spiritual food and drink, as your Spirit causes Jesus Christ to be felt nearer to us and feed us and sustain us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hope. Lord, we pray that if we came in here as people that were just really struggling, that we would leave here in hope because we had met with you, the living God. You're so good to us, Lord. It's obvious why you are called the God of hope. And we worship you now. In the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.